News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I hate dust. I mean, I really do. It makes me sneeze. I hate cleaning it up. I feel like it's always everywhere and I'm losing the battle against it. So it's good to hear that dust particles actually have a use, like helping with criminal investigations. Researchers believe that dust, yes, dust, could actually be a forensic clue. This, of course, I have to learn more about. Dr. Nicole Foster is the study lead and researcher at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Institute and joins us now. Dr. Foster, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Are you telling me that dust actually has a use? Yes, yes, it does. Um, I mean, dust is everywhere, and that's the beauty of it. Um, and because it gets everywhere, it means that we can actually use it to see where a person has traveled based on the chemical and biological signatures that are hidden within dust. What do you mean? What kind of signatures? <laughs> so, uh, dust is basically. The way we look at it is the airborne fraction of soil. So within that airborne fraction, there's different bacteria, there's fungi, there's different elements and minerals that are all within those small particles. And we can analyze these and look at how different locations have different properties. Okay, first of all, that's kind of gross when you describe it that way. (laughs) But but also, so you're talking about uh, far down the line, a successor to even being like tracing someone's DNA or touch DNA. Yeah, yeah. So um, it, you know, we do get the DNA from the dust. That's what we're looking at. And, you know, this could also have human DNA in the dust. Um, But we look at what is the environmental signature because we want to know how, that dust relates to a location. So can we take the dust that's collected on an item and tell where that person has traveled based on the dust? Can you do that? Like how difficult is this? (laughs) That's what we're trying to find out. So the concept sounds crazy. Um, It does. And it's, you know, (laughs) it's, you know, sort of a a stab in the dark, but the usefulness um, in forensics would be very, very good. So It's not easy, as we've discovered, but we can definitely get bacteria and fungi quite easily from dust. Um, I left items out to collect dust in different locations, and we got really distinct signals from these items. Um, You know, it's a really new field, and we only did this study as a pilot to see, can we even do this? And the fact that we could get bacteria and fungi, as well as different elements and minerals from a single swab of dust, it's pretty cool. So yes, we can, but there's a lot to go in this field before we can actually use it and understand the limits. Right. You said that you left some, you know, you left it out to collect the dust, but how long does the dust take for the dust to accumulate in order for you to be able to kind of read something off of it? Yeah, we left it out for three months and we collected after one week, four weeks, eight weeks and 12 weeks. Uh, And after one week, we had a good signal. Um, But that's the question is, how does it change over time? What happens if you travel to different locations and collect different dust from different areas? Can you tease apart where that dust has come from? So there's lots of questions buried in here, but it took only a week, so seven days to get a good, clear dust signal. That is fascinating. Dr. Foster, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
That's Dr. Nicole Foster, the study lead and researcher at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Institute. You know, every once in a while, I'd say more frequently than once a generation, there there's a leap forward that is made in technology that really changes, you know, uh, crimes and investigations and, and trying to solve those crimes and those mysteries. This could be another one of those. Think about it. When they started using fingerprints, that was huge. When they started using DNA, I mean, come on, most of us remember that. That was a huge leap forward. And even in the last 10 years, less than that even, the genetic genealogy tool has been huge and changed, transformed how murders, especially cold cases, are investigated. So this idea that you could use dust uh, and you could actually break down what's in the dust, try to figure out who was in the room, you know, what traces did they bring into the room? That's also, I think, potentially another leap forward. Touch DNA has also been a huge thing too, right? And you've just seen the DNA thing get better and better and better. It is fascinating. I do love finding out more about forensic things and how they solve crimes. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for us to check in with our Scott Chance this morning. Hi. Hi, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm still getting emails from people about shrinkflation, oh, which yeah. I am fascinated by because everybody has noticed this. So do you notice anything when you go to the grocery store that is definitely smaller than what you used to buy? Yeah, absolutely. Granola bars is a big one. Oh, and yeah. I actually, I, I talked about this on Sunday, that it, they're also something called skimpflation, where they're taught like the replacing chocolate with chocolatey. Have you heard about it? Yes. Instead of it being actual chocolate coated or chocolate chips, it's like chocolatey, yeah. chocolatey flavoring. And you still pay the same price. It's just, it's so frustrating. It's maddening. I hate it. This Every, reminds me, yeah. it, I mean, the seventies was like that too, right? Where everything was like an imitation of right. as opposed to the real thing. Uh, Belinda wrote me, said she had an example of shrinkflation that she noticed and cereal is a big one. She said cereal boxes, like the size of the bags yeah. inside the cereal box. She used to like take the bag out and put it in one of her own Tupperware containers and like put that over the lid and it fit perfectly. But now she said when she puts it in there, it's like way short. It's yeah. like it doesn't even fill up the, it's the exact same box, same bag of cereal, yeah. but it's just getting less and less. In when, when you shop, do you look at uh, like the weight or how much yes. is that? I do every time. Of course. Every time. Price by weight is yep. the best way to tell what the price of something is. For sure. I always like a bag of chips. I'm, I'm like, oh, this one is 200 grams. That one is 150 grams. Yeah. Like they just, it's just a bigger bag with more air in it. Absolutely. Maddening, Simi. It is maddening. Uh, what are we talking about this morning? Okay, this is fun. It always happens around this time of year. The baby names of 2023. Uh, totally. Uh, I have no intention of having more children, but the funnest part <laughs> for me of having kids. You mean the more, the most fun part for you? Sorry, yeah. we're doing a grammar segment uh, oh. in the next couple of days. What did so I say? Funnest. Funnest? Yeah. Funnest is a word. It's really not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. The, the <laughs> most fun part for me was naming them, picking names, right? It's I, Some people stress out about that and find it like, they, you know, kids get born and they don't give them a name for a couple of days because they can't decide. We, I was decided, my uh, kid's mother and I were decided on their names like within days of knowing that that we were having kids because the naming part is so fun and we've is been talking fun? about names. I think it's stressful for some people. Well, if that is a thing that stresses you out, uh, there's some trends that sort of come around and go around. So if you're a trendy person, you can follow the trend or some people like to buck the trend. But for, for 2023, here are some of the trends that have been sort of on the rise. Every year, things that... Um, 
were pop in pop culture sort of yeah, become of big things. Like Rihanna played the Super Bowl last year. The name Rihanna shot up in, oh my goodness. in baby names. So does that mean that we are looking forward to a generation of Taylors? You know, that is probably very likely. It's not a trend from 2023, but whatever the big TV show was, I remember a couple of years when it was Game of Thrones, we were getting names like Khaleesi oh and like John and all that type of thing. So this last year, 2023, one of the biggest shows, Succession. All names, all names that have <laughs> shot up. Logan, Roman, Connor, Kendall, and Siobhan. All have gone up dramatically. <laughs> yeah, so that's really exciting. Uh, Rihanna is up, like I was mentioning. Oh, you know what? Betty is up from Taylor so, Swift's album, right? She right. had a song called Betty. Yeah. I will say that old-fashioned names are really back in style. Yeah, definitely. Old-fashioned names are coming in, and the like the baby boy names that like the Raiden, Raiden, Caden, Jaden, Braxton. All the N names are going out. Uh, so the actual names that are on the list. Uh, the top name for girls is Olivia. Okay, still, Fo- huh? Still. still, it's been there for like ten years. Yeah, followed by Emma. Amelie, Emma. Amelia. You know, Emma became big when Rachel on Friends named her kid Emma, and it has been big ever yeah, since. For sure. It's a great name. I love that name. Uh, Sophia, Charlotte, name. Isabella, those nice. are those are all on there. Evelyn, that feels That's like nice. an old person like name. It. Yeah, for sure. Aurora, Ellie. Uh, okay, and then on the boys' side, it's names like Noah. And Liam, those have both been top for a very, very long time. Yeah, Where's Scott on that list? Where's Scott? Oh, gosh. It's like not in the top 100. I went to elementary school with about five Scots. I think that when I... Five Scots, three Derricks, a couple of Bryans, you know. Yeah. In my years, there was a lot of Matts, a lot of Mikes, you know, Matthews and Mikes, which, by the way, that's another trend is instead of the whole name, just giving the, the nickname. Like, whereas someone would be named Elizabeth, and then we would call them Liz or or Ellie, they just are giving the name Liz. Right. And And then for the rest of Liz's life... Liz is going to have to answer to people who go, oh, is your full name Elizabeth? No, no it's just not. Liz. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> really Liz. like one syllable names for that exact reason. I like Scott because it's short and, you know, any type of mm. um, nicknameification of it includes just the ones, just includes Scott, Scotty. Scooter, Scotto, all of that. So one syllable is good for me. Okay. All right. I know that this is a big debate for a lot of people when it comes to naming of children. Did you, was there any kind of dispute or discussion or disagreement about that when you were naming your kids? Not really. So we basically had this rule that uh, either person got veto power and mm-hmm. we just threw every name that we thought of at the board. And there were some names that I really, really liked. And if my girl's mom didn't like those names, we just, I was like, okay, cool. Off the list. We want a name that we both love. And then as soon as we settled on whatever the first name was that came up and we settled on that, right. It was like, oh, we both love that. That we kicked around a few other so ideas, that but that's, that stuck. And yeah. it was that in both cases. So my older daughter, her name is Sloan. And as soon as we hit Sloan, we were both just love that. And we considered a bunch of other names, but well, Sloan just when stuck. When the name feels right, it feels right. Yeah. And that happened in the case of, of both of our cases is that as soon as we had one name, 
you know, we thought, oh, nope, that's it right there. Yeah. There was no change after that. Yeah. And then on our second daughter, we went back and forth between what her middle name was going to be. We both really liked Willow and we both liked Mercy. And I wanted to call her Mercy Willow and Jolie wanted to call her Willow Mercy. And so we kind of flipped a coin huh. and her name is Willow Mercy. That's very, that's very good. Good of you to do that. So my short name is actually, it's a, it's a nickname, my name. Simmy. Simmy. Yeah. There is a longer version of that, but Simmy was the name of a popular at that time. So this is like, I was born in 71. So late sixties, early seventies, Bollywood actress. Okay. So there are, if you run into another Simi, chances are they're probably around my age <laughs> or around thereabouts. And, and they're named after the they're same person. Because because I guess the Simi went on to have a, a talk show on TV. Oh, wow. And okay. so was quite popular because that was the big deal for my mom. It was like, oh, we like the name Simi because of this Bollywood actress. Yeah. Now, does anybody ever call you by your full name? Uh, a few people call me by my full name. Yeah. yeah. Because I think it's one of those things where it just sort of, it sticks. Like I have a, a friend who he got a name. Nickname when he was in very young. His, right. his name is Diggs. That's not his real name, but his he got the nickname Diggs. And so it just stuck? Every person in his whole life, everyone calls him Diggs. So I've had to explain my name my whole life. My uh, spouse has also had to, he has a very, very Newfoundland name. The first time I heard his name, I had to double check yeah. it. Like so it's very times. common in Newfoundland, but not common anywhere else. So we gave our children very straightforward right. one syllable or so names. They hate it. So really? I'm going to have end up with grandchildren with like super complicated, weird names because they're just, they think their names are too plain. And I go, you don't understand what we saved you from. Right. Yes. Yeah. And the nickname thing is always good. It's always like the way out. You know, you can just come up with a nickname or use your middle name and just kind of hope it sticks. I feel like there are options there. You know, sure. some people just want to go by their middle name and they just do. My mom is goes by her middle name and has always, and anytime I hear her use her first name on a form or anything, I'm always like, oh yeah, that's your name. Do you know what name I love? I'm going to say this. I'm going to put this out there and I'm still trying to convince the people in my life who might have children in the next five years to use this name. It was my late mother-in-law's name from okay. Newfoundland. Yeah. Alfreda. Alfreda? Yeah. I love it. Alfie, Alf, maybe call Alf, her Alfie sure, for sure. But Alfreda for a girl, great I name. like it. For a girl, great I like name. it. That was my late mother-in-law's name, and I, I love it. So well, old school Newfoundland. I'm sorry, I'm not going to have any more children to oh, name well, them Alfreda. Somebody else. I'm somebody giving else. it. I'm bequeathing it to the world. <laughs> Thank you for that. Sure. This is mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Yeah, and good morning, Simi. I know a lot of talk this week has been about the anniversary of the atmospheric river. I did see the stories about some of the, the bridges that they have completed. So that was pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, as you've known, uh, I've occasionally grumbled about things you? the government's done and not done. But <laughs> you I have never. to say that yesterday's presentation, they gave us a PowerPoint and press conference and announcement yesterday. A very impressive story and congratulations all around. Two years after the Coquihalla Highway was basically destroyed by the atmospheric river. Great big sections of it washed out. You remember the videos. They, they've completely rebuilt it. Yeah. Uh, 20 sections of the highway wiped out. And, I mean, first of all, remember back then, they had the highway out within 35 days. That in itself was amazing. They've now rebuilt all the bridges that were wiped out, and these were, you know, double bridges because it's a 
divided highway. Um, incredible what they did. The bridges are now, one of them is twice as long as it was before. This is to get it above the flood area. Uh, pilings driven down. I think in one case, they said 15 stories down into the earth. Vegetation replanted and the highway is reopened and all of it done within two years. The highways minister, Rob Fleming, celebrating and praising the build, the road builders and the road builders, you know, it's interesting. Semi find themselves in the interesting position of being in love with an NDP highways minister. And you go back over the history of the government in the 90s. That wasn't the case. So this is, uh, I noticed I was running down the list, Semi, of companies involved. One of them, Emil Anderson, helped build the Coquihalla in the first place under the Socrates. So, you know, there's a, a deep interest in this highway. Uh, it was, you know, a long time ago, the subject of a political scandal in BC because it was over budget. Uh, it was a subject of a second scandal when the BC Liberals tried to privatize it and had to abandon the plan. But the Coquihalla is back. And as I say, congratulations all around on getting that job done very quickly. It's interesting that you say that. I remember, you know, two years ago talking to the Road Builders Association when all this was going on. And even at that time, they were saying the amount of communication with the minister and the ministry, they said, was fantastic, that they were they've been building this relationship for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, British Columbia is a very difficult place to build highways. Yes. And as a result, our road builders are world class. They're very good at it. I, I remember, again, a highways minister, Alec Fraser, the one the bridge is named after. He gave, shortly after I started, uh, 40 years ago, he gave us a tour of the Coquihalla, which was then under construction. And they took us up through that incredible pass where they were building this highway. And I remember he said in one speech, um, it was going to be expensive. Uh, you know, he said you could pave over the province of Saskatchewan for what it cost to build a mile of roadway in British Columbia. So, yeah, our road builders are really good at it. You know, they mentioned yesterday that there's a shortage of skilled workers and they need to recruit more. And there are highway, there is highway work still to be done. Highway 8, the one that goes over to Spence's Bridge, they're not finished. That was completely wiped out. And they're still working on sections of the Trans-Canada Highway. So it's not all done. Uh, they just finished the work on the Malahat over here in Victoria. But all in, very impressive. And it comes with a price tag, Simi. Uh, estimate yesterday, $1.5 billion. Yep. Again, the good news, Ottawa is expected to pick up about 70% of the cost of doing all this, which federal government doesn't always build highways in BC. So again, thank you, Ottawa. Uh, thank you, road builders. And thank you, Transportation Minister Rob Fleming for leaving, leading this whole thing. Okay, so that's the good. Now let's talk about the areas that still need some work, perhaps like merit. Yeah, I mean, there'll be listeners out there and uh, who will go, uh, yeah, I mean, it's great that they rebuilt the highway, but, you know, Lytton is still a smoking ruin. And they only got, I think, one building permit there. And it wasn't involved in the atmospheric river. It was before that. It was a different heat dome. Uh, but Merritt, yes, there are problems with Merritt. A big chunk of the city was flooded out. Merritt, of course, is on the highway. The Coquihalla serves Merritt. And I see, uh, you know, complaints and 
I know Global had one last night from people saying, well, why is it taking so long to deal with the town? Uh, where is our rebuilding? I see the same kind of thing in the Fraser Valley about uh, the flooding from the Nooksack. Mm-hmm. There, people there are encouraged. Similar that there's a, the governments have gotten together and agreed they have to deal with it, but the work is not done. And you know, uh, one hopes we won't have another atmospheric river anytime soon. But in both Merritt and in the Fraser Valley, I think there are legitimate concerns that they got the road rebuilt, but they haven't rebuilt the communities yet. Right. So there you go. There's It's a tickle and a slap, as we would say, right? They did great mm-hmm. on one thing, but there's still work to be done elsewhere. Yeah, and it's expensive. Uh, you know, one of the things that happened with the Coquihalla that I think made it possible to proceed quickly. Uh, first of all, it's all crown land. And First Nations communities were involved right from the get-go. The work crews, as I said, are already in place and the construction companies are all ready to roll. You look at the problems with Lytton and you get into archaeological work and the difficulty of digging up a town site in Merritt. I'm not as familiar with the entire story there, Mm -hmm. but certainly, you know, what can you say? It's easier to rebuild a whole highway than it is to rebuild a town. So, Vaughn, we're talking about uh, what we discussed yesterday. I understand that there's a, a little clarification on this lithium battery announcement. Uh, yes, the Premier's office uh, was listening. I'm delighted. Thank you for listening. I hope they're listening again today. The issue they raised with me was I had described the deal uh, to build this new lithium battery factory in Maple Ridge, federal provincial, as $2 million a job did say in passing that uh, Government money was being used to leverage private investment as well. However, the Premier's office thinks that a listener may have gotten the impression that it was $2 million a job, all public money. So I went back over the press release and yes, um, the government money in this project is $284 million and the rest is leveraged. Uh, So we're getting 350 new jobs there, Simi. Uh, $284 million, unless my calculator isn't working this morning, is only, and I put only in quote marks, $800,000 in public per job. So what a relief. It's not $2 million. Thanks, Premier (laughs) Office, for pointing it out. And I hope you appreciate the clarification. Yes. Oh, yes. Big clarification. Thank you for letting us know about that. Also, we were going to talk a little bit more about the BC Hydro Site C situation. Yeah. So a couple of interesting things about Hydro's announcement this week that they have given up on the idea of filling the reservoir behind Site C, and instead they're going to do it next year. Now, Hydro said that's because there's still a bunch of work needs to be done and winter is coming. A couple of interesting bits of feedback. So the first thing I heard from somebody who said, you know, you... um, Adam Olson of the Greens asked about this in the House last week, but he asked about an environmental concern. So what about the grizzly bears and the black bears? Hydro, again, Olson raised this in the House, the Greens, uh, was looking to relocate the dens of some 24 bears. Uh, 
in order to uh, get them out of the way of the flooding, right? And biologists had said, um, you know, their bears are going to be hibernating. Um, it's not really a good idea to disturb bears during hibernation, and not just for your own safety, but for the safety of the bears as well. So, uh, you know, it's interesting whether that was something Hydro thought about in putting this off because, you know, that time was running out, the filling of the reservoir is going to take four months and relocating the bears would take some time too. Hydro didn't mention that and I haven't had a chance to ask them. Uh, the other thing that's kind of interesting is I heard from an engineering source and the engineering source says, the other thing they're not talking about is the drought in the north. So the engineering source says there's a shortage of water in the north and that's one of the reasons they're not filling the reservoir is there isn't enough water in the other two reservoirs. Remember, Site C is the third dam on the Peace River. There's two above it. Uh, there isn't enough water up there to be sure of being able to fill the whole thing at the pace they want, so they've put it off for another year. Um, it's too soon to say what hydro will respond to all this, but Simi, it wouldn't be the first time that BC Hydro didn't tell you the whole story of their reasons behind a decision they made. That's concerning, though, that that could be a problem, especially they, they talk a lot about climate change. But if there's going to start to be water shortages up there, is it potentially that Site C might not be as useful as they think it's going to be? Uh, you know, Simi, that is a, a huge issue for British Columbia. The uh, One of the reasons we have so much genuinely clean emissions-free power in BC is because we have these giant reservoirs and these giant hydroelectric dams. And, you know, they have some kinds of backup, but generally we've got huge reserves, uh, reservoirs like a battery storage. So if the Pacific storm track shifts, as it may well do with climate change, we may not get the level of water in BC that we have in the past, and it could be a long-term problem for BC Hydro. I haven't seen any indication yet that that's coming, but the one thing I did again receive after the chat on the radio yesterday was somebody saying BC Hydro has committed again and again to meet all kinds of electrical demands, industrial trans conversion from fossil fuels, natural gas, uh, home heating uh, to electric, um, vehicle fleets converting, electric cars, growth of the economy, and the demands on hydro are going to be enormous. Now, hydro is out there saying, yes, well, that's why we need Site C. And they're also going to be issuing a power call in the spring for more wind power. And they're looking at geothermal. So all of that. But yeah, there's, there's going to be huge demands on BC Hydro in a growing province and one that's trying to convert away from fossil fuels. And you're right. If the drought thing turns out to be a problem uh, for the reservoirs in the long run, Hydro may have trouble meeting all of these demands that they're hoping to meet. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much for that, Vaughn. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. As always, if you would like to weigh in, you can. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. How much does hearing bad grammar pain you? I'd have to say that seeing it written down is what drives me crazy. And sure, when people mix up things like imply and infer, I might internally cringe a little bit, but physical distress seems a bit much, doesn't it? 
Apparently not. Dr. Dagmar Diviak is a professorial research fellow in cognitive linguistics and language cognition at the University of Birmingham and joins us now to talk about this. Thank you for being here. Good morning. I hope that nothing I have said so far has been incorrect enough to cause you any physical distress. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it that you have studied? So our project was um, inspired by our, our desire or our need to find a way to measure what people know about their language and about the structure of their language in particular without asking them explicitly. So when you ask people, oh, does this sound good to you or would you say this, then you don't really get a good idea of what they would actually say because they're very likely to tell you what they think you would like to hear or what they know they should be saying because that's what they've been taught in school. So sometimes also asking these explicit questions you know, has all kinds of problems when you work with, for example, very young children. When you ask them, does this, this sound good? That makes absolutely no sense to them. And then on the other side, you also have um, elderly populations suffering from um, brain decline who can no longer answer these questions. And with all these populations and for all those reasons, we want to find a way to measure what they know about the language that they speak. Right. So we wanted what they call an implicit measure. So you measured kind of their physiological responses to bad grammar? Yeah, so we wanted to find um, a measure that, that signals as an automatic response, right? That they have no control over and that they cannot fake. For example, you can make people read something and then by measuring where their eyes look and how long they pause on a specific word, you can determine that, oh, that must have been a difficult word for them to process. So we then uh, went down... Um, another route, and that was that of physiological responses, heart rate variability. And what did you find? Um, so heart rate variability is a measure that may sound very fancy, but nowadays most people have smartwatches, and those smartwatches also measure um, the, the extent to which you're experiencing stress. And it will tell you, or, you know, you may need to, you may want to take a moment because stress levels appear high. And it's exactly the same measurement that underlies what we did. So um, everybody knows heart rate, your heart beats at, at a specific um, pace. But there's also variability in the length of the intervals between successive heartbeats. And if those intervals are uneven, that suggests that you are in a relaxed state. But if they're very even, that signals some kind of stress. And we let people listen to speech recordings that contained um, grammatical errors. In this case, these were errors against the English article system. So whether you say it's rice or a rice or the rice. And we found that they showed literally physical signs of stress when they were listening to sound clips that contained um, language errors. Interestingly, we found that um, the more errors we included in the sound clips, the stronger the reaction was. And they also show this stronger reaction when they listen to speakers who had an authentic British-English accent, we did this in Britain, versus a foreign accent. Oh boy, this explains so much of what I do for a living. <laughs> now I find I'm going to I'm going to be very very careful with my words now for the next little while because of this. So even though we may not realize that we are doing this, our bodies are having some kind of reaction to this when we hear it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what does this tell us? 
Well, for us, this really shows that there is a, a yet another dimension to the link between cognition, the mind, and the body or physical responses to things that put stress on your cognitive system that, that make it work harder. It, does it not also tell us that we clearly are pickier or more aware of of these kinds of things? And we realize we may not think grammar and language is a big deal to us, but somewhere in our brain, we are still recognizing it when we hear it incorrectly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we as linguists, we think about these things as expectation violations. So you are very aware of how things in your environment usually are. And you notice very, very small deviations from what you're used to. Um, can be, you know, the sun goes up later, the door sounds different when it opens, but it can also be that person didn't exactly say things the way I was expecting them to say it. And it goes indeed very, very far. So it shows at a really intricate level how much people know about the structure of the language they speak, although when you ask them explicitly, they wouldn't be able to verbalize their knowledge. So this really also, is this a native language situation or can it also be a, a learn language for people, for instance, if they have a second language that they then learn? Yeah, so we tested native speakers of English um, and we let them listen to these sound clips, but it's also a good way to test second language learners. So people who learn a foreign language, any foreign language really, to see what they know about the language without having to ask them explicitly, without having to put them through this, the typical type of test that we would use in classroom settings. So it gives a, a much more fine-grained view of what they know than sometimes they can demonstrate or make explicit. So what do you do with this research now? What are the next steps? So some of the questions that um, we're currently investigating is whether this has something to do with personality. So are certain personality types more susceptible to this uh, stress-induced um, situation that comes from um, language errors? Um, on the other hand, we also want to use it to collect data from populations that would otherwise be hard to reach. So this is this, the device that we use is you know, very small, like the size of two mobile phones. And you can just put a strap around someone's finger and measure their heart rate variability. So it's much easier to take out into the field and to use in authentic communicative situations like you could have one and I could have one and we could measure what kind of stress levels we are right. currently experiencing. So it makes it possible to study language in actual communication rather than in very artificial lab settings and that will give us more authentic data and a better view of what people um, know and how they engage language when they speak. Oh boy, I don't know if I'd want people to realize just how picky <laughs> I could possibly be. Uh, Dr. Diviak, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks so much for having me. That's Dr. Dagmar Diviak, who's a professorial research fellow in cognitive linguistics and language cognition at the University of Birmingham. It is a bit like opening Pandora's box when we start talking about grammar. I know nobody is perfect. We all have our little things that we say that are probably incorrect, little habits that we have. Some are more egregious than others, I would say, according to Dr. Diviak anyway. Uh, but you know what? There's a lot of it that is probably more colloquial than just proper grammar. But I know people have their pet peeves on this topic. So, okay.
Let's do that. If you want to email me, simi at cknw.com, because guess what? Alex already did. Alex said, Simi, I thought you were joking when you said to Scott that there was going to be a grammar segment. Now it turns out there is. So here are the worst offenders that Alex says they hear so often. Amount of people, Alex says, should be number of people. Multiple people should be many people. Less versus fewer. That is very true, Alex. I hear those mixed up all the time. Uh, So this is a big one for Alex and another one for me. Quote, him and I are going to the park. No, he and I are going to the park or me and Jimmy are going to the park. That that whole mix up is definitely one that I hear over and over and over, quite frequently, actually. So what is yours? Yes, let's hear it. You can tell us your grammar pet peeve, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It is a question I know a lot of people, a lot of us are asking these days, and that is why are we seeing so much anti-Semitism all of a sudden at universities? Where did this come from? I've been trying to understand it myself. There is a lot to unpack on this issue. So to talk about it this morning, we are joined by Dr. Leela Marom, who's the Assistant Professor of Education at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. How do you think we got here? What has happened? It's a hard question, but um, first of all, I think that anti-Semitism is an ongoing issue. We just don't talk about it. So it, it was kind of like conveniently hidden. Um, because Jews are, you know, in many ways assimilated and integrated, you know, within the context of North America. So they were kind of like absorbed into, you know, um, whiteness and um, considered to be, quote-unquote, you know, a model minority. Uh, however, this form of integration, and in many ways, is not complete. And it's not, um, you cannot ignore that this is still a distinct group with distinct history, uh, one of the oldest form of racism. And um, they cannot, and, and they're still there, you know, kind of like whenever there is um issue like we're experiencing since October 7, you can see those uh, underlying current um, kind of like emerging. So I think this is, it has to do with this assumed whiteness and because when we talk about um, anti-racism, a lot of time we think within those North American categories uh, of race, right? And I'm talking about race as a social construct, not as a real biological distinction, but still Jews kind of like are omit kind of like are left out within this framing. Um, and then I think the second part of it is also that in Canada, we talk a lot about um, the lingering legacy of colonialism and settler colonialism. And we talk about decolonizing and those are very important topics. But I think again, within this framing, um, because of the affiliation of Jewish people in Israel, Jews become kind of like, you know, uh, embodiment of oppression, colonialism, and this is not that we cannot have very complex political discussions that we can not talk about those issues, but right. I think there is very quick affiliation and association uh, with Jews as being oppressors, and again, this leads to 
anti-Semitism. This is what I have seen as well. And I, I thought, well, where's the historical context here? Why aren't people looking further into history to put, get the fuller perspective on that? Uh, I don't know. Well, I guess people, a lot of people don't do it. I think it's easy to, you know, it's easy to to want to have very easy... Or to think, that, um, I, I almost think, Dr. Maram, it's it's as though they feel like they have discovered something or they have put it into a new context and therefore this context is correct, but they're forgetting everything we have learned in the past. I, I, I agree that, you know, people can easily adopt framing and, you know, it makes you, it makes you feel good when you have this kind of framing. This is an outlook on reality and it makes everything easy. So there is good and bad, you know, evil and, you know, and righteousness, but... I think reality is more complex. I think it's really important to look for racism and oppression and be able to, you know, to, to, have, to aim to create better societies. But I think this framing, if you just put it and throw it on reality, a lot of time without understanding of the context, with assuming that you can take right. it from the Canadian context and throw it on a different country, context, it's just not good enough. Is there a way for universities, you think, to fight back or to combat this? Yeah, I think that university did a really good um, work and, you know, and this is an ongoing work on kind of like saying, okay, we have a problem around, I don't know, um, um, anti-black racism or we have an issue or, or we are want to, you know, part of this truth and reconciliation. We have tasks and we need to look at how we do uh, things in higher education. And I think anti-Semitism need to be brought back into these conversations and university the same way. You need to create task force, collect data, listen to students, listen to faculty, listen to all of those are being targeted now, and then build recommendation and, you know, to protect students and also to acknowledge and address mm-hmm. anti-Semitism. Those are all important things. We'll, we'll see what happens. But thank you so much for having the discussion with us this morning. Thank you for having me. That is Dr. Leela Maram, who's Assistant Professor of Education at Simon Fraser University, talking about the ways in which universities can, should, and need to push back against the anti-Semitism that we see happening on campuses across the country, not just in Canada, but across the United States as well. Everywhere, it seems like it is happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. They are the stories that have really been making headlines in the last few weeks. This surge of instances where we hear about mistreatment by airlines in particular towards people with disabilities, people who need their wheelchairs and maybe they're not there or they don't get sent in luggage. And it's just been a nightmare situation for passengers. And we've spoken to a couple of them here on the show. So there are obviously things that airlines can do better. I mean, Air Canada even had to apologize publicly for their failure in some of these cases. And you know what? Airports can do things better too. That is something that they are trying to learn how to do. What can they do better? That's what we're going to learn about now. Eric Payton is with us, the Chief Experience Officer at Vancouver International Airport. Eric, thank you for joining us this morning. No, my pleasure. Good morning, Simi. Good morning. Is this something that the airport at YVR has also noticed that, all right, we clearly need to make sure we are doing things as best as we can in this area? 
Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, we work in collaboration with our airline partners, but at the end of the day, a passenger at YVR is a passenger at YVR. So we need to put the effort into everything we can do on our end. And so uh, I've been with the airport about 10 months now, and this has been a primary focus for me and uh, for the airport uh, going back many years, but continuing to put more more and more money into accessibility measures and uh, uh, increase our staffing to to be able to handle uh, more and more of this, obviously, with uh, the aging population as well. And I, I believe it's about one in five people now um, come through the airport with some kind of disability, be it uh, physical, visual, um, or on the spectrum, etc. So definitely a primary focus for us. So how do you do that then? Is that enough of, you know, you have to make sure the right kind of wheelchair is available to get people on and off airplanes. You have to make sure that level of service is there. Absolutely. So we're doing a few different things. Um, Even as of December 1st, we're launching uh, a new curbside greeter program that you will find uh, YVR ambassadors all the way across the entire level three uh, curbside, welcoming people to the airport, being able to just be far more uh, attentive to uh, incoming passengers who might have uh, some needs that start right from the curbside, continuing to work with our airline partners to facilitate that movement of passengers through. We've managed to get trackers on all of our wheelchairs now so we know uh, exactly where they are at all times and are far better able to actually move them around the airport to meet the needs. Um, We've instituted new sweeps of all of our uh, areas late at night, uh, especially following uh, some of the recent incidents, just making sure that we've got uh, everybody picked up and and on their way um, and even putting training in place. We've been working with the Pacific Family Autism Network uh, over the last couple of years and even all of our first responders, um, firefighters and frontline staff are all trained uh, now working uh, with people on the spectrum and how how is that implemented. We've been working with Rick Hansen since 28 when we received a gold rating uh, for our facility. So yeah, it's just mm-hmm. becoming more and more common and more and more of a focal point for us. And 24 will actually see us invest the most money we've ever put into accessibility into the facility. Oh, good. Okay. So getting people, passengers on and off the airplanes when some of them require that special type of wheelchair because it can fit on the airplane to get people on and off. Now, is that an airport responsibility or is that an airline responsibility? No, that's an airline responsibility. Um, so that is something that the airlines are, are certainly cognizant of. And we, we've even in the last couple of weeks had meetings with Air Canada to learn more about how they're uh, upgrading their training and facilities to be able to better manage those, obviously, as our largest airline partner here at the airport, but continuing to have conversations with all of our airline partners to ensure that that type of service is meeting the standards that our passengers would expect. Right. That's what I was wondering. Eric, is there something that YVR would step in and say, you know, if people say this happened at in Vancouver, you don't want people to think that it was the airport that failed in that regard? Oh, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, people don't. It's it's our reputation. And uh, and that's something that's super important to us. And we certainly 
want to continue to elevate uh, that that piece of the passenger journey from our end. And the only way we can do that is to work with our commercial partners and airline partners in those spaces and uh, give them the support that they need from our end, uh, including things like that autism training and others that uh, we can help them uh, just enhance their services. Because at the end of the day, it's it's really all about the passenger. So. Exactly. So then what is the goal here, Eric? So if someone who needs a little extra help in whatever area comes to YVR, how do you envision that process unfolding? Well, right now, if you are looking for extra help when you come to the airport, you can go to the YVR.ca website and uh put in uh, a service request for curbside greeting, et cetera, and identify yourself as somebody who's looking for that. Air Canada has a service desk just inside uh, the link tower, which is in between international and domestic departures, where you can ask for extra assistance. There's curbside boxes um, where you can request assistance, but we are working with the airlines to try and also drive uh, more information directly from them into YVR so that we can do a much better job of just identifying and making sure we're ready for those passengers as they're coming through the airport. So if someone does need that extra help, how do they reach out to the airport ahead of time? You go through the uh, website, yvr.ca, and uh, look at the accessible area on the website. I don't have the uh, exact link off the top of my head. That's okay. Um, But, uh, and uh, you can... uh, put in a request through email, or I believe there's also a phone number that you can call in on and uh, make the request personally as well. Okay, good. Hopefully, you know, the situation will get better for people. But Eric, thank you for telling us about that. No, of course. It's uh, my pleasure. At the end of the day, humans connect with humans and uh, YBR is on a, on a mission um, to really humanize that, uh, that airport journey and uh, give people the, the comfort that they can know that they're going to come to the airport and have a great experience. Good. That's what we like to hear. Eric, thank you. That's, <laughs> that's Eric Pateman, Chief Experience Officer of Vancouver International Airport, because we were curious about that. As all these stories recently about people with disabilities having problems with airlines, with wheelchairs, with getting on and off airplanes. And I thought, well, what can airports do better? Because some of these cases involve airports, some of them involve airlines. And as you hear in YVR, they are definitely trying harder to kind of bridge that gap and make sure people who need assistance get exactly what they need and have a seamless experience. And that is a good thing. Every airport should do that. Every airline uh, should be doing that. And I find it interesting that Eric said that they had met with Air Canada recently because of all these stories to say, What's going on here? How can this experience be improved? And what can we do to help? So that's good because we shouldn't ever hear of those stories again. This is Mornings with Simi. Sometimes get the feeling that we follow the housing market here in Metro Vancouver the way a lot of people follow the weather, right? We're checking on it every day, seeing what's happening, how many listings are there, what's going on, what's the listing price like. And especially in light of these new short-term rental regulations that BC is putting in place, they come into effect early next year. But it means that a lot of people are not going to be able to use their property as uh, an Airbnb anymore. So does that mean they're going to put them up for sale? Does that mean that they're willing to lower the price on them? Well, in some places, you have seen definitely an increase in the number of listings out there. For instance, in Victoria, there are quite a few kind of one-bedroom condominiums that have come on the market since this announcement was made. But here's the kicker. 
is that they're not really selling. Even if the prices are coming down a little bit, there really isn't a whole lot of movement. Now, Jimmy Thompson's been writing about this. The award-winning freelance journalist based in Victoria joins us now to talk about it. Good morning, Jimmy. Good morning, Simi. So what have you noticed about the real estate market? Well, I mean, just as, as you said there, it is like a flood of listings. I mean, it, people have, have disputed the word flood, but it's, it's really unusual, the number of listings that are coming on, on the market right now in Victoria. What kind of listings would you say? Condos. Very specifically, it's condos that were formerly Airbnbs. Um, and you can tell, you know, you look at the listings and there's these pictures of Ikea furniture and no books on the shelves and no clothes in the closets and little signs that say, please don't use the detergent on this shelf. You know, those kind of <laughs> listings. <laughs> right. Very familiar if people know, you know, if they've ever been in Airbnb. So you did a little digging into this, Jimmy, and you looked at these listings. And, and what did you find? What was interesting about them? Well, I mean, a couple of things. I found that there are there are just a lot of them. That that was really interesting because the, the ban was just announced in mid October. So, and it doesn't take effect until May. But a lot of these owners are saying, "I got to get out of this because I think they're thinking these prices, this this premium that this place can get because it's an Airbnb, uh, is going to evaporate." So that was that was one thing, and the other thing is nobody is buying. Uh, the the last sales there were there were two sales in that that went through after October, and I think those sales were were completed, but not you know not finalized before the ban came into effect. So I think none of these Airbnb condos have actually sold in the time since the ban was announced, which is which is really fascinating because it means people are trying to get too much money for them. Well, that's what I'm wondering then. So is there still do you think a price listing stubbornness out there? There must be. I, I think it, people are, I think there, there's a couple of things happening. First, I think people are a little bit worried because, or a lot worried maybe, because they, they may have bought in 2020, 2021 for these huge inflated prices. A place in the, the Janion building in downtown Victoria, they can be like 300 square feet, 250 square feet, tiny, 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 tiny places. Yeah. And it, they're trying to sell them for $450,000. It's, Nobody who wants to live in that place full time is going to pay that or or that's what the market seems to be saying. So that's one one of the things that's happening. I think the other thing is um, there's just a bit of a of a of an expectation maybe that that like it's like Wiley Coyote running off a cliff. You know, he hasn't looked down yet. Um, but he's still right. That's a great visual, first of all. I really like that. So I, I, I feel that too in the housing market in general, that there seems to be a disconnect between uh, the, the people who are listing their properties versus the people who want to potentially buy their properties. This, the price that is willing to be paid, they're not agreeing on that at all right now. Yeah, and, and also the price that the people are able to pay. So yes. uh, two years ago, rates were like, you know, you could get a mortgage for two, 2%. Now rates are 6%. So triple the, the interest cost for, for that same place. Um, so that alone should normally be exerting downward pressure, but it's it just not happening yet. So it's, it, it's just a, a mismatch between what people are able or willing to pay and what people think that their places are worth. What are you hearing from real estate agents? Well, they, they, well, the, the, the guy I talked to a lot for this story, Dustin Miller, is a, he's a real estate broker. And he, so he's kind of, you know, he wins no matter what, I guess is sort of, so he was, he was a lot more open about, about these kinds of things. And he was saying, 
like people are deluded right now. They, they think that their places still have this extra value because of the, the ability. So in Victoria, the, uh, Airbnbs are, are, it's not, most places can't be Airbnb full time, but there are a few, there are about 1600 units that are zoned specifically to be allowed to be Airbnbs. Those are going away. So people think that they still have this premium uh, value on their on their places, and they just don't anymore. So that's what that's what he was saying. He's, he, these people just don't know what what has hit them all hit them yet. Right, and they're still marketing it as such, aren't they? Yeah, in some cases, yeah. So it's kind of funny to see in the days after the announcement, some of the places went on on Realtor dot com. Clearly with the exact same pictures and even description as they had on Airbnb. <laughs> so it'd be like they, they had literally just slapped up their listing from one site onto another and just said, let's get rid of this as soon as possible. So it sounds like the Victoria real estate market is still in a bit of a holding zone. Do you think more listings are going to be coming on soon, Jimmy? Like, what have you heard? Well, as I said, there's there's about 1,600 of these units and they really can't be rented long-term. If people bought them in the last couple of years, they're just, their carrying costs would be way too high. Um, no one is going to be buying them to rent them out either. It's just, it just doesn't make sense, the economics of it. So they're going to have to be sold to people who actually want to live in them. Um, there's really no other route, unless these people are successful with some kind of legal challenge, which doesn't seem that likely either. So that's 1,600 units, and there's, we've only seen... Uh, you know, about 50 of these particular units come on the, the market so far. Um, so I think we're, we're almost definitely going to see a huge increase, probably closer to the spring. All right, we'll see what happens. I know we'll be watching carefully. Jimmy, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That is Jimmy Thompson. Jimmy is an award-winning freelance journalist based in Victoria who's been writing about the real estate market there. Did a little digging because all of a sudden there were a lot more listings on the market in Victoria for one-bedroom condos. And he a lot more listings, but still at kind of stubbornly high prices or prices that kind of factor in the premium of being able to Airbnb your suite, which will no longer be the case in the spring. So people obviously trying to get out ahead of that unload this condo, but not st- still not understanding that you're not going to get that same price for it. So that's in Victoria. I wonder if anybody has noticed that here. Are there more listings popping up now that perhaps normally would have been Airbnb would have gotten a premium? Are we going to see that happen? And most importantly, will we see a reduction in list prices? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com would love to hear from you on that front. This is Mornings with Simi. Started out as a revolution in diabetes treatment, and now it's turned out that those same medications are causing a bit of a revolution in obesity treatment, and they are going to upend uh, the way we interact with the healthcare system. At least that's what Scott Chance is talking about this morning, right, Scott? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're right. It's like every week I talk to somebody else who has started taking Ozempic uh, as a as a weight loss treatment, um, and Uh, There's kind of this impression, or at least I had this impression, that it was like, oh, this is a diabetes medication that, oh, whoops, we found out it also treats uh, obesity. And it turns out that that's, I I realized that that's a very much an (laughs) oversimplification of of how this all worked because those things are are so combined. But the thing is, it's working so successfully at treating obesity that people are starting to now – 
look like really long term with this and how well it's going to work and actually potentially like change the world. I mean, the Ozempic could mean that you get cheaper airline flights, you know, and uh, okay, how? My, well, my, I'll let my guest okay. explain. His name is Gregory Steinberg. He's a professor at McMaster University and an investigator for Diabetes Canada. And uh, so I wanted to ask him about like what the far reaching implications of all this are. And, you know, they're potentially pretty positive. But I started just by asking him, like, even for people who are unfamiliar, like, what is diabetes or excuse me, what is obesity medication? Because it's not just Ozempic. There's a bunch of other ones as well. But what is that? What is uh, obesity medication? Sure. An obesity medication is a, a medication that uh, uh, helps to lower body mass and adiposity. Um, and uh, these medications typically work by affecting energy balance in that uh, they either affect uh, the amount of energy or uh, food we consume, uh, the amount of food that ab- is absorbed, or the amount of food that is uh, burned, or the amount of calories that are burned. And it delays the uh, release of food from the stomach, uh, making you feel more full for longer. And as a result, it uh, suppresses your appetite. It's now being prescribed for weight loss. Um, and is it like, is there any danger with that? Like I know tons of people that are using it for that reason. Um, is there any concern? I mean, obviously people should talk to their, their family doctor. Did you have any concerns around that? Yeah, of course. I mean, people should talk to their doctor always. Um, but you know, the GLP one pathway has been studied intensely in people, uh, since 2005 when the first medication came on board, uh, called exenatide. Uh, there was later a, another molecule developed that was slightly more efficacious called glutide, and it was also shown to be very safe. So, uh, you know, this new molecule, semaglutide, which is the brand name Ozempic or Wagovi, um, is really a diabetes medication, but just used at a higher dose to suppress appetite and, and cause this weight loss. So, it's it's been known and tested for many many years uh, in people. Uh, in general, it, it's a well-established mechanism that's been tested in people and known to be safe. Okay, fantastic. Now, like I said, I know a lot of people that um, are using this uh, this medication for weight loss and having uh, having great results. They're finding that it, that it works well, and as a result of that, one of the things that people are sort of kind of predicting is that this type of medication is is here to stay. That you know, as we look forward into our future that it sort of is going to become this like, oh, I, I'm overweight and I'm uncomfortable being overweight. So, no problem. There's a simple solution to that. We know it works. We'll just get you a prescription for Ozempic and it's going to become one of these very uh, popular, mainstream, kind of everybody does it type of things. Do you foresee that? Um, yeah, absolutely. We know obesity is a disease that uh, increases your risk of developing a number of uh, other uh, chronic diseases such as type 2 diabetes, uh, heart disease, and fatty liver disease, and kidney disease. And uh, we know that typically uh, people who go on a lifestyle intervention program, uh, meaning they diet and exercise, they get some success in the first six months, but that ultimately those uh, interventions fail. And that's not because these people are weak-willed or don't have the desire to maintain that program. It's because uh, their body's metabolism slows down and they're 
hunger hormones kick in and tell them that they're starving. And as a result, uh, you, you know, lifestyle interventions, exercise, and diet typically fail within the first one to two years, and they're back to where they were. And therefore, their risk of developing diabetes, heart disease, cancer is still elevated. So what we've learned from these medications is really that uh, while you're on it, you have sustained weight loss. You can maintain that weight loss, that 10 to 15% weight loss. You're lowering your risk of having a heart attack by over 20%. You, you know, there's a real reason to be on these medications because it's saving, going to save lives. When we think about how, how this can help our society, it's like, will we see things like uh, less healthcare costs because we have to treat less people for things like heart conditions like you're talking about? I actually saw one person sort of speculate that, you know, if there's this kind of dramatic decrease in obesity, it means that like planes would actually be carrying less weight and thus use less fuel and something like air travel could even become less expensive all as the result of this drug. Now, is that, does that sound far-fetched to you or this is the type of thing that this could actually change? No, there's no doubt these, uh, these medications are game changers as someone who's worked in obesity for the last 25 years and to finally hit the sort of 10 to 20% plus weight loss is getting too comparable to where we're getting with something like a, a bariatric surgery. So meaningful changes in sustainable weight loss, which is really important. There's no doubt that uh, hitting this kind of sustained weight loss is very, very important and can have big impacts on a, a multiple number of conditions. And, you know, when you start hearing people speculating also about how it might affect uh, shares of Pepsi or Coke, uh, you know, because these people, obese people might be less uh, interested in drinking the products, you know, you're, you know, you're having big effects on the, the market as a whole. What would you say to those people who, who are unfamiliar or sort of uneducated around uh, this type of medication or obesity in general, who sort of look at it and think, well, uh, this is just a shortcut to replacing a healthy lifestyle. Things like, you know, we, we, there's no replacement for exercise and diet. As someone who uh, exercises every day, there's lots of good reasons to exercise uh, for mental health and other aspects of uh, uh, improving your health and well-being. Uh, but from a weight loss perspective, you know, we've tried uh, for many, many years and lifestyle interventions, as I described, uh, your metabolism is, you know, uh, geared against you uh, with weight loss. And it's just very, very hard to achieve without uh, some break on the feeding uh, response and telling you to not eat more. So, you know, this should just be considered an additional uh, tool in the arsenal to uh, improve health and well-being. That's uh, Professor Gregory Steinberg. He's from McMaster University. He's an investigator for Diabetes Canada. I found that really interesting because yeah. you don't hear, like, in terms of percentages, that it's coming close to, like, what you get, the percentage of weight loss that you get when you do a, a bariatric surgery. Right. Here's the thing. Media does what media does. And they have been focused on the occasional story of someone who has... Uh, 
bad side effects from right. these drugs, right? And yes, that absolutely happens. It is true. But I know a lot of doctors, because I've been talking to doctors and, and diabetes specialists in particular about this, will tell you that the overall savings and impact to the healthcare system and just the system in general is huge. Huge. And I mean, did you catch that? He said, like, less weight on airplanes because we have this obesity epidemic, as, yes. as some people have called it. So less fuel, so less gas surcharges on your airline ticket. And here's the other thing is that other pharmaceutical companies are, are concerned about this because if you think about it, Scott, if you lower your weight yep. and let's say you no longer are in the range of having you know, diabetes issues or high blood pressure, or, and you therefore you don't need to take high blood pressure medication right. or cholesterol medication right. or diabetes medication. Think about all those other pharmaceutical companies that are now going, well, wait a minute, what do you mean you don't need our medication? You don't because you just need this one. Total game changer, really huge thing. And they've been working towards this for years and years and years and years. So yeah, I think it's sort of, at least for me, a reframing of how I saw the right. use of Ozempic. Yeah. Right. And, and so, as you say, it's not just, it's semaglutide, right? It's not right. just the Ozempic. Yes. And so now you are actually seeing them be approved for use as weight loss. Yeah, drugs. exactly. And they, oh, Wegovy is the, Wegovy, the yeah. brain. And Wegovy is, is just, another one. Yeah. Yes. And they're talking about even even more successful ones that are being yeah. tested and stuff. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. It is an incredible time to watch. I'm sure doctors are fascinated by this. No question. About how, yeah. they, how it's had an impact on their patients. I find stories about like how science and doctors and these people who are geniuses who put this work in and yeah. take a big, it feels like a big step forward. It does. You know, I love that. It, what we see in five years, I think, is going to be very, very different. And what's interesting as well is that there are people who probably this would be good for them health-wise. Maybe they are pre-diabetic, whatever the case may be, sure. but they've been reluctant because they think, oh, it's a trendy drug and people are taking it for weight loss. So there's a lot of conversations with doctors, I think, to be had here. Definitely. Yeah. And of course, he specified that too. You know, make sure you talk to your doctor about exactly. this. Exactly. Talk yeah. to your doctor. Scott, thank you. Yeah, of course. So interesting. 